Hi there. I'm Lee Redhead, a writer and member of Sisters in Crime Australia. Welcome to Scarlet Stiletto Bites, scintillating short stories by Australian women. Our weekly podcast is designed for busy lives. Each murder mystery is short, but not always sweet. Expect twisted tales, quirky humour, imagination, and a frisson of feminism. Sisters in Crime Australia's Scarlet Stiletto Awards were established in 1994 to unearth criminal literary talent. We're producing these podcasts of winning stories to celebrate the sisters' 30th anniversary ceremony in Melbourne in late 2023. The concept designer and narrator is fellow sister, actor, barrister, broadcaster, and best-selling true crime author, Susanna Lopez. Hello, Susanna here. Does prison rehabilitate offenders? Or does it just hone their skills, teach them new tricks? And what can we judge from appearance? Today's story takes a look. The Teardrop Tattoos by Angela Savage, 2011 Scarlet Stiletto winner. And there is some dark content here. You cringe when you see my tattooed tears, but driven by the same impulse that makes you slow when you pass a car crash, you look closer. One is transparent, a silhouette. The other, clear at the top and blue at the bottom, looks swollen, like it might roll down my cheek at any moment. Who would do that to themselves? I hear your mind ticking over. Hear you whisper, gang, murder, prison. Does it mean she killed somebody? The boy is young and cocky, doesn't know how to hold his tongue. His mother shushes him and steps up the pace. I want to yell out, yeah, I did. But his mother has dragged him away from the scary dyke and her dog. One of those dangerous breeds, she's thinking, the kind they train to fight. I don't hate her. She's only doing her job, protecting her boy. People think I'm a lesbian because of the way I look, although I never had sex with a woman, not even in my mind. I haven't had sex with anyone at all in a long time, but... Not even the tattooed tears are enough to put some men off trying. Sully scares away the last of them. Sully is a dangerous breed, an American pit bull. I got him through a contact I made at the rat house. I read up on dogs and fuck all else to do and concluded an American pit bull was the one for me. They've got a bad reputation. They look mean. People give them a wide berth, but get them when they're young and train them properly and you can't go wrong. Loyal, intelligent, protective, loving. My husband had none of these qualities. I could bloody well have them in a dog. The guy I got him from said Sully was blue, but to me he's the colour of storm clouds, 
with a streak of white on his chest, I think of as his silver lining. He lies on his back as I run my fingers up and down his white streak, gives me a black lip grin and pounds the floor so hard with his tail I worry about the neighbours in the flat below will complain. But Sully isn't just a defence, he's my friend. A dog's affection is still more than I deserve, but Sully doesn't hold that against me. The flat where we live is in Brunswick, one of those inner-city Melbourne suburbs where wogs and yuppies collide. Not my choice, but beggars can't be choosers. At least I've got a place where pets are allowed. I would have preferred a car. Me and Sully could have slept in it, taken off whenever we wanted, made a home of the open road. But you can't check in with your parole officer when you're on the road. The powers that be gave me a place three doors from a childcare centre. I can't hear the children if I keep the windows shut. Me and Sully try to stay out of sight at drop-off and pick-up times, though it means lying low for up to two hours at the end of each day, which isn't always possible. It was winter when I moved in. The childcare centre opened at Sparrow's Fart, and some kids were dropped off while it was still dark. Through the Venetian blind in my bedroom, I watched mothers unbundle their babies from capsules and car seats, drawn faces illuminated by the interior lights of their SUVs. I watched them juggle their babies on one hip, close the car door with the other, stagger lopsidedly to the entrance and punch in the security code. When they reappeared minutes later, the women were light on their feet. I watched them dab at baby spew on lapels, slip into stilettos, touch up lipstick in the rearview mirrors. I felt nothing for these women. <laughs> Neutralist Switzerland, me. When the childcare centre traffic died down, I'd take Sully to the park. Well, not so much a park as a grassy block surrounded by temporary fencing with a hole in it. It reeked of a failed development, like a builder had overcapitalised and didn't want to crystallise his losses by liquidating his assets. You're surprised someone like me says things like overcapitalised and liquidate assets? Yeah, well, you would judge a book by its cover. Just so happens in a past life, I was a girl from a nice family with a diploma of business and a promising career in insurance. Not that it matters now. No one's ever going to give me a job in insurance. One day, Sally and me ran around the park long enough to work up a sweat, even though it was only September and the sun wasn't quite strong enough to uh, knock the chill out of the air. While I squeezed out through the hole in the fence, Sully ran ahead of me towards the flat and nearly collided with the woman coming down the hill, pushing a pram. Apart from a purple scarf, the woman was dressed head to toe in black. Her hair was black with purple streaks. The pram, the fancy kind that costs as much as a car, was also black and purple. She slowed as I neared in that 
way of mothers who expect you to ooh and ah over their kid. I only glanced at it four or five months maybe, wearing a hand-knitted beanie. And fuck me, if the beanie wasn't black and purple too. The woman smiled. No one had fucking smiled at me since the night I killed my husband. Hello, she said. Hello. I turned to make sure she could see my tattoos. Oh, nice to see some sun. Yeah. Cute pup. What kind is it? American pit bull. Oh. She struggled to maintain her smile. But if looking like a murderous dyke wasn't enough to put her off, Sully was. I was enjoying my smug moment so much that I nearly let Sully scamper off the edge of the gutter and into the traffic. I scooped him up with my foot, dumped him on the footpath and smacked him hard across the face. American pit bulls have such a high pain threshold, I had to be forceful so he'd get the message not to run out on the street. Sully yelped in surprise and I saw the woman's smile take another hit as she added animal cruelty to the list of things she hated about me. She leaned into the pram and fussed over the kid's beanie. Well, me and Charlie better get going, she said. See ya. She headed to the crèche at the bottom of the hill, trailing disapproval like a vapour in her wake. When the letter came a week later, I knew who was behind it. Council has received advice that you are in possession of a restricted breed dog, namely an American Pit Bull Terrier, this being a breed whose importation into Australia is prohibited absolutely under the Commonwealth Customs, brackets, prohibited imports, close brackets, regulations 1956, as of 2 November 2005, the domestic brackets feral and nuisance brackets animals act 1994 makes it an offence to acquire a restricted breed dog. Oh shit, an offence would be a breach of my parole. Council records show you have not registered your dog. All residents are required by law to register their dog by age three months. Persons applying to register their dog must make a declaration as to whether their dog is a restricted breed. A sizable court penalty applies for a false declaration. Council cannot accept the registration of restricted breed dogs. Oh, fuck. I couldn't keep Sully without registering him. But if I tried to register him, I'd get done for acquiring a restricted breed. So much for Sully's silver lining. Why the fuck couldn't that woman have just left us alone? Why did she have to stop and talk to me? Couldn't she read the big neon sign over my head saying, Fuck off? And why did I tell her what kind of dog he was? She'd wrong-footed me with her smile and her chit-chat about the weather. 
Now, losing Sully was the price I'd pay for being fucking polite. I stood a moment in the galley kitchen of my flat, holding the council letter, burning with rage. It was a slow burn, not a conflagration. I was in control. Then, a eureka moment. It almost made me wish I could attend another session just to tell the group about it. Check it out, I spoke aloud, as if they were there in the kitchenette with me. Anger therapy's worked. I'm controlling my impulses. I'm going to take my time, really plan my revenge to make sure to hurt this woman like she's hurt me. Sully, the sweet little mite, thought I was talking to him and drummed the floor with his tail. That night, I took him back where I got him. I didn't think I had enough heart left to break. But saying goodbye to Sully proved me wrong. My first step was to find out where she lived. It's not easy to observe someone undetected when you weigh nearly 90 kilos and have tattoos on your face. You can't march into a childcare centre and ask to see the records for Charlie. Shit, I didn't even know if Charlie was a boy or a girl. (laughs) Could be either these days. I was at the local video store when the solution came to me. A DVD called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang caught my eye. A Val Kilmer movie I hadn't seen, though I saw a lot of his movies in the Rat House. My favourite was The Saint, where he had all the gadgets and disguises. And that's when it struck me. I could disguise myself. I might not have Val Kilmer's budget, but I had a Savers down the road and a Vinnie's round the corner. Stuff was cheap at Savers, and if I played my cards right, the old dears at the Vinnies might give me what I needed for free. My spirits lifted for the first time since losing Sully. I grabbed Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, found The Saint, and took both DVDs to the counter. The video store guy caught me smiling. (laughs) Nearly scared the shit out of him. I spun a story to the two old dears at the Vinnies about being a a single mum in hiding from a violent bastard who forcibly tattooed my face. I only want to buy my groceries, I deliberately used the old-fashioned word, without having to look over my shoulder. Well, fuck me if the old biddies didn't mobilise like a pair of retired army officers. One of them, Eunice, found me a couple of wigs, a grey curly one, much like her own hair, and a long brown one with a thick fringe. We get them from cancer patients, Eunice said. Survivors, she added quickly as if it mattered. They don't need the wigs once their hair grows back. While units rifled through the racks, the other one, Carmella, put together an ensemble she called the Nonna Look. Black cardigan, shapeless black dress, black headscarf to go over the grey wig. She teamed this with some low-heeled lace-up shoes 
and even found me an unopened packet of support stockings. Eunice reappeared with a blue tent dress, lambskin vest, beige boots and sunglasses with lenses the size of beer coasters. I wasn't crazy about trying it all on, but the old dears were keen and I wanted to keep them sweet. The nonna look was brilliant. My own mother wouldn't have recognised me. If she did, she would have crossed the street, but that's beside the point. Un momento, Carmela murmured at my reflection in the change room mirror. She ducked off and returned with a black handbag. I think the, I think the Levedova will try to speak Italiano with you. Vedove? The widows. She adjusted the lacy headscarf to hide the tattooed tears. Perfect. Eunice's hippie shit looked better than I'd imagined. It was years since I'd felt hair on my shoulders or worn a dress. I looked like one of those jovial, plump women with an appetite for life. The type I normally did what I could to avoid. In the interest of authenticity, I let Eunice drape a string of beads over my head, but when she reached up to remove the sunglasses, I flinched. May I? A voice you'd use with a wounded animal. I couldn't see what she was doing, but felt something cool and damp press against my right cheekbone. She stepped back. Much better. I looked in the mirror. She had covered over my tears. Concealer, she pressed a small cylinder into my hand. Hides a multitude of sins. I was too shocked to speak. I used the hippie chick disguise to tail her, and when she passed by my apartment window again, pushing her fancy pram, I gave her a 20-second head start crossed the road and followed her up the hill. Her house turned out to be a 15-minute walk in the direction of Sydney Road. If Brunswick was a body, Sydney Road was the spinal cord that held it all together and made it move. There's nothing suspicious about a hippie on Sydney Road, so I followed Pram Woman until she turned into the entrance of a sand-coloured weatherboard house opposite a small park. At last, a lucky break. I slowed my pace and paused to rub an imaginary blister on my heel, used the park fence for balance. A row of spindly shrubs blocked my view of Pram Woman's house, but the front door was clearly visible through the gate in her picket fence. A tortoiseshell cat sprang out of the way as she pushed up onto the veranda. The number on her mailbox was 124. Early next morning, I walked down the same street in my nonna disguise. A dark green sedan I hadn't noticed the previous evening was parked out front. I headed for the park and chose the bench with the best view of the house. Someone had covered one arm of the park bench with a knitted sleeve. I'd seen fence railings, bicycle stands and signposts in the area, clothed in random bits of knitting like this. Was it a jug? A message? 
Not knowing made me uneasy. I shuffled to the other end of the bench and took out a, a string of rosary beads I'd found in the Vinnie's handbag. I'd long ago stopped believing in God, but I, I figured people would leave me alone if they, if they thought I was praying. Just before seven, a passing car projected a missile that hit the veranda of number 124 with a thud of paper on wood. The front door opened and the woman dashed out, snatched the newspaper, dashed back in again. Hair standing on end and wearing a too tight black tracksuit, she made me think of a trapdoor spider. Twenty minutes later, a man in a suit appeared, lean and polished. I could practically smell his aftershave from across the road. The green sedan beeped as he made for the driver's side, mobile phone against his ear before he'd even fastened his seatbelt. It was quiet for almost an hour after that. I sipped at a bottle of water and ignored the growling of my stomach. A curly-haired woman with dark circles under her eyes entered the park behind a careening toddler. She sat on a swing and watched as the boy scooped up handfuls of tan bark and flung them into the breeze. I watched the boy too, accidentally made eye contact with the woman. She gave me a tired smile. I had my hands on the beads in case she came over, but was saved by the arrival of a second mother and child duo. They all seemed to know each other. I returned to my surveillance. Around 8.30, my target re-emerged in her trademark black and purple and turned her pram in the direction of the childcare centre. This time, the baby wore pink. A girl, then. As soon as they were out of sight, I crossed the road at a pace appropriate to an overweight and elderly woman and paused in front of the house as if to catch my breath. I hadn't heard the telltale beep of the burglar alarm and there was no sticker in the front window, no blue light on the roof. The left side gate was covered in vines. The right was a recycled wooden door left ajar. No alarm, no dog... Ample cover and a gate left open. This is what the Berg merchants in the slammer would call a dream job. I took a tissue from my handbag, wiped my nose and leaned over the front fence to use the bin. The recycling bin was closest. Amid the empty wine bottles, newspapers, tins and plastic, I found what I was looking for. An envelope addressed to... Belinda Hyatt. I spent a week of mornings in the park, getting a handle on the daily routine. Hubby worked full time. Belinda did three days from home. The days little Charlie went off to childcare. When she had the baby with her, Belinda usually went out. Once I followed her to a cafe on Sydney Road. It was jammed with prams. A sticker on the window said, Breastfeeding welcome here. Sydney Road swarmed with old women in black. I'd barely noticed them before, but now that I was one of them, I, I saw them everywhere. And I realised how much we had in common.
Their public grief set them apart. My tattooed tears served the same purpose. I learned to impersonate their, their rolling gait, a pace that allowed me to cruise past Belinda's house even when she was working. Through the shrubbery, I watched her in the front room at her computer, the tortoiseshell cat lolling on her desk like an oversized paperweight. I undertook evening surveillance in my hippie guise. You didn't see so many nonnas out after dark, but as hippie chick I could always pretend to be going out or heading home, depending on the hour. Most evenings were quiet at Belinda's, the green sedan always home before seven. Lights shone from windows at the rear where the kitchen was located, moving later to the lounge room at the front, and the place was dark by eleven. I turned up one evening to find Belinda's husband in the front yard, watering the garden. The baby was suspended against his chest in one of those uh, carriers, arms and legs flapping like a pull-string puppet. The man was chatting to the baby, but paused as I walked past to give me a straight-toothed smile that made my eyes water. I kept walking until I found myself outside a pub on Sydney Road. The barman's pierced eyebrow made him look permanently surprised, but he didn't blink when Hippie Chick ordered a pot. The smell was room deodoriser that reminded me of prison, so I headed out to the beer garden. It was like walking in on a summer camp. A pack of hairy men playing ping-pong, exchanging banter with the young women at a nearby table who were drinking beer and knitting. A guy at a table on his own was smoking rollies and reading a book. I thought next time I should bring a book too, then laughed at myself for imagining there would be a next time. One of the hairy guys approached me. I almost told him to fuck off when I realised that it was only after the ping-pong ball that had rolled under my table. Thanks, he smiled. I smiled back. He went back to his ping-pong game. I wiped the sweat from my upper lip. A couple walked in, tattooed sleeves interlinked. On their heels was a staffy, blue like Sully. I looked at the empty space at my feet. If it wasn't for Belinda, Sully would have been there too, making me smile with his goofy grin and thumping tail. I drained my beer and left. The following night, it was after twelve when I ventured onto Belinda's property. It was dark, apart from a dull glow in the second window on the right side, a, a, a night light in the baby's room. I inspected the window. Old wood, new lock, key dangling in it. Jamming it open with a crowbar would be easy but noisy. I made my way to the back of the house. The yard was organised into garden beds, a fig tree on one side, lemon on the other, a small deck held a trestle table and chairs, security door, more key-locked windows. Belinda and her hubby weren't as slack about security as I thought. A flash of light caught my eye. 
I took a closer look at what was on the table. Lead light. A work in progress. Perhaps a feature window or a panel for the door. Lead light was an activity that we were offered in the Rat House as an alternative to boredom until the screws twigged that Tracy the Fox Ferrigno was using the classes to conduct her own lessons in the art of glass cutting for B&E purposes. I scanned the yard again, registering the shed in the corner. It was wide open. On a low shelf were Belinda's lead-like tools, pliers, rulers, brushes and glass cutters. A square of light came on. It beamed into the yard from the house. Someone was stirring. I crouched in the shadows by the shed, then hurried back the way I'd come. Sounds from the baby's room. I squatted beneath the window and listened. Floorboards creaking rhythmically, a muted female voice accompanying the gentle drumming. I thought Belinda might be pacing the room, though I hadn't heard the baby cry. Then recognition hit me like a punch in the guts. Belinda was in a rocking chair with Charlie at her breast. I just knew it. I slumped to the ground, my back pressed against the weatherboards, my tears like acid. The right night presented itself a week later. New moon, north wind, wheelie bins out front. I wore black jeans, a long-sleeved T-shirt and sneakers, carried a Swiss army knife in one pocket, WD-40 in the other. Not a night for disguises. I reached number 124 at 4am, the quiet time between the baby's one o'clock feed and the man's 6.30 jog. I let myself around the back and took the glass cutters from the shed. The rusty wire screen on the window tore like tissue paper and the wind masked the sound as I carved a hole in the glass large enough to insert my hand and disengage the window lock. A squirt of WD-40 enabled me to ease the window open with barely a sound. I'd learnt well from Tracy the Fox. My heart speeded up as I prepared to teach Belinda Hyatt how it felt to lose what she loved. I scooped up the warm body at the end of the cot, held close to her mouth and nose, hauled her back out through the window with me and slashed her throat with my knife. The body jerked in spasms for a few moments, then flopped in my arms, silent and still. I stood fixed to the spot, blood seeping into my clothes, the weight growing heavier in my arms. I expected to feel excited at this point, even elated. Instead, I was appalled, even as I felt compelled to see my ghastly plan through. I retraced my steps to the front of the house and arranged the body on the doorstep where it would be seen when Belinda emerged to collect the newspaper. My hands were sticky with blood, and even in the dim light I could see black liquid pooling on the doormat. I stepped back, taking in the bloody tableau, 
trying to imagine Belinda's reaction. The horror in her face, the likelihood she would scream, but still I felt no satisfaction, only disgust. But I was a hardened criminal, for fuck's sake. I had the teardrop tattoos to prove it. Then it was as if the characters I'd been playing had gotten under my skin. The tetchy old nonna who commanded respect. The hippie chick with so few cares in the world she probably knitted covers for street posts. I'd spent the past few weeks blending into a, a community. A door had opened that I believed was closed to me forever. Could I step through it? Or should I bolt it shut for good? I returned my gaze to the mess on the doorstep. My nonna thought about cleaning it up, burying the body in the park or disposing of it in a wheelie bin. Hippie chick dreaded the thought of Belinda coming to the door with Charlie on her hip. But I reckon the baby was too young to get upset at the sight of a dead cat. Besides, I was only going through with this for Charlie's sake. Belinda needed to know her house was not secure. She needed to do more to protect little Charlie. The dead cat would be a wake-up call. A wake-up call. Would it have saved my baby if I'd called home from work that night? He might not have heard the phone through his drunken stupor, but perhaps the sound would have roused my son before he could suffocate in his sleep. The transparent tear, that's for my lost baby. The other tear is for my husband, who put the baby to sleep on his stomach. My mistake was killing the bastard. I did it to punish him, but all it did was release him from the terrible pain I lived with every day. Grief so profound, so permanent, not even tattooed tears can do it justice. I needed to put distance between me and the cat. I jogged back to my apartment, bagged my bloodied clothes, showered and dressed again to add the bag to the wheelie bin. When I turned to go back inside, I spied something in my mailbox. Another letter from the council. I ripped it open and read by the foyer light. Council wishes to advise that we found no evidence to substantiate the claim that you are in possession of a restricted breed dog. Consequently, the Child Care Centre has now withdrawn its complaint on this matter and you are no longer under investigation. I caught my reflection in the plate glass door as it closed behind me. You see my teardrop tattoos? Look closer. The end. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love your feedback. Subscribe for free to Scarlet Stiletto Bites wherever you get podcasts. And do visit our website, sistersincrime.com dot org dot au